Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. If crashing 10 miles out of town and ending up facing back the way we came was a warning, we did not heed. We had never learned heed. In our family, no one taught it and no one took it. This program features the work of 2012 writer Stacy Bennett's. She discussed her work with curator Sean Wong. At age eight, can you sort of briefly describe what a typical drug smuggling trip would entail? What would happen is my mom would go to California. She would get a camper from Mr. Wonderful. She would have a co-driver, and they would drive this camper to Mexico down to Mazatlan initially for a few years, and it would get filled up. Uh, you would go park at a hotel one night, and uh, this gentleman named Mark would come take the camper in the middle of the night, and they would go load it with the grower, and when you woke up, the camper would be filled. There was a hidden space in the roof. It carried about 500 pounds of marijuana, and then you would drive it back across the border. For two reasons, they started including my sister and I. One was a basic child care issue, so they thought, throw us in the camper. Um, the other issue, which I, I believe it was more important, was a child decoy, because we were sort of little and cute, as kids are want to be, and that is disruptive and kind of um, confuses Border Patrol. They're not likely to search a vehicle like that. If the customs agents open the back door, I was to stand there and look cute and play my flute, uh, specifically to interrupt the process of a more detailed search. It seems to me that this book is um, less about the smuggling itself and uh, marijuana than it is a, a book about family. Why is this family story different from other family stories, or why is it the same? I hope, my, my feeling is that it's the same. My experience was my family is extremely loving, intelligent, kind, and very relatable to any given family. I see families, that same struggle of uh, a family growing up, underlying addictions, maybe distractions, single parents, all of those things. And it's a story in the end about moving through that, uh, pulling together, uh, rehabilitating, but also facing consequences. Now we'll hear a selection from Stacy's live reading. I'm going to read a chapter. It's like, I think it's chapter 20 out of 30 chapters. Yeah, the end of law school, I was indicted my last semester um, and convicted of a federal felony. And I uh, appealed to a couple, two Supreme Courts and was allowed to practice law after four years. And, uh, and my wonderful husband let me board with him during house arrest. Um, I'm really glad to be here and thanks for coming. Uh, so I guess, <laughs> I mean, you know, just tonight, but in general too. Um, what you should know about this chapter is it's one of different chapters where my father encouraged us to smuggle money for this greater conspiracy, and we also did marijuana smuggling around the world, and this is called Singapore, and Mr. Wonderful is what we called the uh, kingpin. That's what my dad named him because we liked him. He was a nice guy, and we got to travel, so we call him Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Wonderful. 
Just shy of 2.30 a.m. in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the condo was freezing and silent when Bonnie and I walked in from another too long day. Eight hours on the slope teaching, quick salad at Bubba's Barbecue, and five hours cocktailing at the Million Dollar Cowboy Bar. Bonnie walked straight into our bedroom with tropical flamingo wallpaper and turned the electric blanket on high. I went to the kitchen, separated from the living room by a long oak bar, and surveyed the cupboards. The only quick fix was instant oatmeal. I pulled open a single serving packet with a frantic swipe and ate from my hand like a horse taking oats. The phone rang, interrupting the quiet of the Aspen's development. Bonnie hollered, pick it up, might be dad, before I even had a chance. Unwilling to relinquish my oats, I tucked the phone under my chin, held the packet in one hand and oat remnants in the other. Hey dad, I said making my way to the built-in window bed, looking out on acres of deep snow inhabited by elk and moose. No two-step, too tired. What time is it there? Bonnie popped up next to me on the wood frame and whispered in my free ear, Ask when he's coming home. Shh, I said, tipping the phone horizontal so we could both listen. What do you guys think about coming out to visit your old dad? What, we both said. Come visit, come to Singapore. Really? Bon asked. Miss you guys too much to wait until I get home, whenever that might be. Mr. Wonderful wants to set you up with tickets next week. Work for you? Since my indoctrination into smuggling marijuana across the Mexican border as an eight-year-old, I knew our so-called vacations had a greater purpose. Yet I figured if mom and dad thought it was safe, who was I to turn down a trip? yet alone feel afraid. Someone from LA will give you a call next couple of days, Dad said. So you better wrap things up on the hill. Our last exit towards smuggling felt joyously out of control when we left Jackson Hole and Dad's Black Mercury. Probably adrenaline led Bonnie to drive too fast over Targhee Pass in ice and snow. As we sang along with George Strait about all my, Texas, all my exes live in Texas, I felt excited for the road trip and the thrill of seeing Dad after our long separation. Bon and I laughed so hard at our attempts to accompany George, tears rolled over raccoon goggle tans. Slow down, I hollered, bracing my right hand on the generous dash as we started to slide. It looked like ice, which in Wyoming and Montana, Montana girl, often means black ice. As my words floated toward her, remixed with George belting, Eileen and Abilene forgot I hung the moon. The mercury spun 180 degrees and another 180, simultaneously crossing the road toward oncoming cars until we barreled into the snow-filled ditch with a whoomph. I nearly peed my too tight Levi's while my heart caught up to our new location and George continued without giving up a note to our near-death experience. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back toward Jackson, trying to form a sentence, a piece of me wondered, did God just reach down and turn us around like a two-ounce Hot Wheel, urging us back to our condo? If crashing 10 miles out of town and ending up facing back the way we came was a warning, we did not heed. We had never learned heed. In our family, no one taught it and no one took it. Instead, a friendly cowboy quickly towed us 180 degrees back toward trouble, and I took the wheel. 
<laughs> I turned the music off until we hit Idaho. Better for Bonnie to hear my unspoken, I told you so. The rush we maintained during our four-day prep and 1,826-mile drive came to a screeching halt once we arrived in Los Angeles to wait for instructions. Waiting, we knew, was an inevitable part of the drug business. It wasn't an exact science. Bon and I had no need to leave our hotel since we were adequately equipped with proper smuggling clothes from prior trips. A drop weight dr waist dress to billow over hidden packs of cash, in addition to adding a pious touch, a large leather purse to carry it once removed from under the dress, a bodysuit to hold the money close to every available inch of skin. We carefully set out our tools and crawled into bed for the inevitable sleepless night. Gratefully, Mr. Wonderful's call came during morning television and showering. Between writing down the address of his hotel and signaling Bonnie to turn down the TV, Mr. Wonderful said, It'll be great to see you two. Drive on over, and I'll give you that gift we talked about. I'll take care of your car during your vacation. When Mr. Wonderful opened the door of his room, my childhood adoration for the kingpin was fully intact. He stood six feet, four inches tall, but slouched because he didn't have anything to prove. He wore a white linen shirt, wrinkled, not crisp, his thick blonde hair cut respectively above his ears. He opened the door wide and grabbed both our full packs with one swift soup. Hey, girls, good to see you again, he said. As I stepped around Mr. Wonderful, I saw the cigar man across the room. Gazing into an open suitcase, I assumed, held at least half a million dollars. He seemed to routinely find his way close to be involved with the money end of the operation. The cigar man was the only member of the organization I knew to carry a gun, and the last guy you would want to carry one. He turned slightly when we entered, skipped the hello, and asked, You girls been to Asia before? Cigar cemented to his lower lip even as he spoke. Nope, Bond said, pushing at my back to bring us further into the fold. A lot of water. Ships, he said. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I was there. Okay, let's get started, girls, Mr. Wonderful said, plopping our bags on the second queen bed. Kinda in a hurry here, sorry to say. We knew it was time to remove our dresses, by far the most uncomfortable part of money smuggling. Like tearing off a Band-Aid, it was best done quickly, so we pulled them off expertly and lined up before the cigar man, much like a child prostitute showing their wares. Standing motionless, we attempted small talk to distract ourselves as we received the ill-gotten gains. Richard coated us in cigar smoke, mummifying the memory of his cold fingers on our skin. Nothing wrong with this picture, family, friends, preparing for a vacation, I told myself weakly. I aimed for a mental departure ahead of the actual flight, falling into my easy habit of counting one to ten, one to ten, the mental groove that served as strong Tylenol for my conscience. I was relieved to maneuver into my seat on KLM Air next to my big sister an hour later. We shared our row with two other flyers, their carry-on luggage of the legal overhead compartment variety. My full leotard held close hundreds of bills which poked my flesh with impunity and sent my temperature rising. You think we can go to the bathroom together? I whispered, 
once the flight attendant announced we had reached a stable peeing altitude. I don't see how I can barely fit myself. We had both had the pleasure of offloading stacks of bills from our bodysuits in the confines of an airplane bathroom in the past. It was nearly impossible to free a stack from beneath the back of your own leotard. A little jimmying up and down against the sink counter could help move money closer to reach, but it was a nerve-wracking and exasperating solo procedure. Also, the germ-laden confines of the airplane toilet ensured a nauseating experience. Were it not for the greater discomfort caused by poking bills and pinching rubber bands, I would have abandoned the in-flight effort and left the money on my person. That option could only be worthwhile on a short flight. And who catches a pedal jumper to move drug money? As I swiveled into the 4 by 4 bathroom, the space reeked of toilet bowl cleaner and too strong soap. I wiped the puny sink dry and set my purse in the bowl. Pay attention, honey. Propping the opening wide to receive Mr. Wonderful's bounty. Using my foot, I flipped shut the toilet lid for insurance and struggled to pull the unflattering smuggling smock over my head, elbows knocking both walls, knees touching moist toilet parts. It easily took 20 minutes to transfer all the money. I counted twice to make sure I had 32 stacks of $100 bills and exited my cell. Oh my God, it's nasty in there, I said to Bon as soon as I got back to my seat. I feel like I'm going to puke. Try to sleep, she said. I'll wait till you feel okay before I do mine. Five hours later, I awoke with renewed energy to tackle our exit and continue on the mission. I could smell our mint Dr. Bronner shampoo on her thick red hair. Do you think we'll get to see the ship? I whispered. Doubt it. It's off the coast of Africa somewhere. Not Africa. We're not even close to Africa, I said, pulling out the airline map. Flipping pages, we vied for control of our universe and attempted to place ourselves on one of the continents. My mind wandered as we looked over the map. Is this Japan, China, or Asia? Which one is the communist one? I'd never heard of Kowloon, but I liked the sound, the way it laid on my tongue long after it had been said. It sounded like I knew a foreign language just by saying it. Between us, we had half a million dollars and no idea where Kowloon was. One hour before touchdown, I lugged my white leather purse to the rear of the plane to repack the money, my nerves crackling on high alert. Tucking the funds back into my bodysuit was even harder than removing them. Sweat dripped between barely their breasts by the time the last stack of hundreds was nestled under my dress. At the x-ray machine, guards with guns at their sides, barely visible to the not guilty, stared hard in our direction. I clung to Mr. Wonderful's assurance we were guilty of nothing. I aimed for a saunter. My pulse quickened as the line through the seeing machine slowed. Bon walked ahead, placing her now empty purse on the conveyor belt. I checked my breathing and coached myself to smile as I followed suit. Arch of the detector. That the technology could find metal under clothing made me feel naked and raw. Does the x-ray tell them I'm a bad person? Can they see I'm a bulimic and a drunk? If so, they kept it to themselves, merely nodding their welcome to the two very white, tall girls with generous purses. Beyond the security hurdles, a steady flow of Asian travelers pulled us toward a line of taxis.
Sounds of clipped speech cut through the humid air. Bon handed our driver a scrap of paper detailing the name and address of the hotel where we've been directed to stay. Mr. Wonderful told us to check in and wait for a sign from a man named Sparrowhawk. Sparrowhawk? That can't be his real name, I said. <laughs> it was after we collapsed on our queen bed. What's he going to do, land on the windowsill? <laughs> Must be a code name or something. Hope he calls soon, Bond said. We got to get rid of this money. I'm starving, I added. We couldn't figure out if they had room service, and even if they did, we didn't know how to order. So we sat and stewed and watched Hong Kong TV. As we waited, my fear mounted. Even my hunger seemed unimportant. It had been way easier in Amsterdam when Ron the fugitive came right over and relieved us of our burden. When the knock came an hour later, it seemed like we'd been there all day. I jumped off the bed and blurted stupidly to Bon, who's that? <laughs> I don't know, how would I know, she shot back. I'm gonna answer it, put the money under the bed, in case. In case what, I didn't know, but acting as though I did had long ago become my survival mode. Bon shoved both purses deep behind the dangling bedspread with her foot and stood by the bed as I opened the door. Bennett's daughters? said a tall man standing alone in the hall. Yes, I said. Sparrowhawk. <laughs> he stuck out his hand for a shake, and I witnessed my hand meet his of its own volition. He didn't look like an exotic drug smuggler in need of a code name. Maybe he created an interesting name to compensate for his lack of individuality. He was just a guy. I work for Mr. Wills, he said. Can I come in? I had to process the name Wills before I remembered it was Mr. Wonderful's real name. Right, sure, I said, stepping aside. Do you girls have something for me? Now that the delivery was due, it seemed stupid to just hand over all the money to someone we'd never met before and never seen a picture of without some hoops to jump through. Uh, yeah, Bond said, rooting around under the bed. I hadn't even closed the door yet. Bond just grabbed the two purses and handed them to Sparrowhawk. I'll just put the money into my bag, he said, pulling a black day pack I hadn't previously noticed from his shoulder. Thankfully, Sparrowhawk made short work of transferring the green bundles. After a long two minutes, he zipped his bag, looked up and smiled. My lips probably turned up in return. And then he left, or alighted. Sparrowhawk, a predator hunting in sudden dashes. That was weird, I said. Seemed okay, Bond said. I suppose, since we're still standing, I said. By the time I stepped off the plane in Singapore that March of 1987, my body had grown fatter than I thought it knew how. I stopped weighing myself at 198 pounds. I was supposed to be in my prime at 21. For once, it seemed my insides matched my outsides. My gray skin made me look like I had a circulatory disease. Tiny blood vessels popped in my eyes and cheeks, eruptions from the volcanic pressure of puking. The glands in my neck and jaw swelled. Something had to change. I planned to stop binging and purging on the trip. I could not binge in Singapore, I told myself over and over. Circumstances were on my side, I reasoned, as I would be hard-pressed to get rid of Bonnie for five minutes during the trip. Plus, the food would be foreign fare, 
Octopus and such, hardly a Twinkie in sight. My gut was certainly not in tune with the ominous signals saner individuals may have heeded, which I guess is the point of a full-fledged eating disorder. As long as I had my head in the toilet, I could not see the crazy life in front of me. Only I could no longer eat enough, drink enough, or sleep around enough to ignore the fact that I had just landed in Singapore to cavort with my dad during the apex of an international drug smuggling conspiracy. Singapore, the city-state island often referred to as Disneyland with a death penalty. <laughs> the place where vandalism draws a punishment of caning, where they have a mandatory death penalty for possessing 500 grams of marijuana, and we were conspiring to possess 32 tons. <laughs> Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2012 curator of this program is Sean Wong. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, and Mo Preventure. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Rachel Matthews, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>